Luke 13, everybody there? Let me say this up front. We gather every week as a church to read the Bible and to listen to a sermon in which the meaning of a particular text is explained. That's my job typically. And so as I prepare this sermon each week, I prepare it. I want you to know I prepare it primarily to preach to the members of the church. By that I mean to Christians. Those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Lord and our Savior, that's, that's the first audience that I have in mind as I'm preparing my sermon each week. And we do that every Sunday, and you show up every Sunday to, to hear the Word of God because together we believe that God builds His church on His Word and for His glory, right? But having said that, I, I'm also keenly aware that on every Sunday, any given Sunday, that there are also those who are here who do not yet know Christ, who are not yet Christians. And I preach with you in mind as well. I preach with you in mind as well. And I pray that the Lord will speak to you as you listen to his word proclaimed. This morning, however, if that's you, I want you to know that this sermon is mainly structured for you, non-Christian. Because our text this morning contains Jesus' direct words to those who have not yet fully trusted in him to be the Savior that they need. He's talking primarily to you this morning. You're going to hear the gospel this morning. You're going to hear the gospel. And what gospel means is it, it means good news. And the good news of the Bible is that God has provided a way for you to escape the judgment that he is justified in bringing upon the world. And he is justified in bringing judgment upon the world because of our rejection of him as the only true God who is worthy of our worship. The good news is that God has provided a way of forgiveness through his son Jesus Christ so that you could know him and that you could enjoy the blessings of a reconciled relationship with him forever. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I'm praying that, that you'll, you'll hear of his goodness this morning. Now, this message is also relevant for the rest of us who are Christians. You know Christians, members of this church. We talk about the gospel every week. And we talk about the gospel every week because those of us who are already reconciled to God, are happy to hear it again and again and again. We're happy to hear it because we know that this is the message that's not only reconciled us to God, has not only saved us, but it's also the message that sustains us in our ongoing walk with him in this new life that he's purchased for us through the sacrifice at the cross. So this message is for everybody this morning. So my encouragement is this, let's relish in the gospel together this morning. And again, if you're there at Luke chapter 13, which is on page 872 in that pew Bible, let's begin to read it together. Chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
Now look up for a second. Let's get some context here. Chapter 13 opens up with this group of people who are telling Jesus about a recent tragedy that they had heard about that had occurred on the temple grounds in Jerusalem. What they're talking about here is, is a, a, some moment where Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, and also was known to be a very proud and a very violent man, he was generally hated by the Jews, he was not a good ruler, he had apparently ordered the slaughter of some Galilean Jews whom he perhaps perceived to be rebellious or for whatever reason. Uh, now remember the Galileans, our Jewish people, Jesus grew up in the region of Galilee, so some people from that very region that Jesus was from were apparently down in Jerusalem. This is probably on the Sabbath day because it's talking about their sacrifices that they were making, so they were on the temple grounds, and they were brutally killed. So this group of people is bringing this up to Jesus for some reason, who are these people who are telling Jesus about this now? Well, it says here in verse 1 that these were people who were among those who were present at that time. What time? Well, it's the time that we've been in the last couple of weeks, the time referred to in chapter 12, where Jesus is specifically warning his disciples and the nearby crowd of people who are hearing him about the coming judgment day. He's warning them specifically about the day of the Lord. And as I read through chapter 12, I can't help but wonder if the sharing of this tragic news wasn't a direct response to what Jesus said back in chapter 12, verse 54 to 56. Look back up there. It's just a, a couple sentences north of where you are. He said also to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So maybe those present here in the beginning of chapter 13 were beginning to think about what it means to interpret the times that they were living in in relation to the coming judgment of God against sin. And so they start scanning their brains and they start thinking about recent news events that they've heard of and and maybe here in, in verse one they're saying ah yes this thing that happened to the galileans maybe this is one of those signs that jesus is talking about i think that's what they were doing but here's the thing they were missing the point they were missing the point and we too can easily miss the point when we try to connect current news events with biblical warnings of impending judgment by saying, oh, that, that tragedy over there, that must have happened because God was judging those people for, and then you fill in the blank, right? For this or that thing that I've seen happen or we've read about in the news. Listen, don't do that. Don't do that. A couple reasons why. First, it is theologically dubious to do that. But secondly, again, it just it misses the point. It misses the point. Jesus' response points them and us to the real issue that we're meant to consider when tragedies occur. And this is the first point, if you're taking notes this morning, the first point I want to highlight is this. God's judgment against human sin hangs over everyone alike. God's judgment 
against human sin hangs over everyone alike. Look back down at verse 2. Remember, they just pointed out the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Verse 2, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So I said they were missing the point. Do you get the point? When bad or tragic things happen, we're not meant to assume that it has something to do with God's specific judgment against some specific act of sin. Now, it's not to say that that's never the case. Sometimes that may be the case. But Jesus wants us to understand that, look, bad things happen because the whole world is under the curse of sin. The trajectory of decay is always trending downward as history moves forward. The whole world is under that problem. The death-inducing effect of sin is both pervasive and it is universal. Sin affects everyone and everything. That's his point. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now he's not saying here that we're all going to be violently killed or that we're all going to have a tower fall on us, of course. But he is saying, you're all going to die. You're all going to die and you will all face judgment because we are all guilty equally as sinners before a holy God. No one more so and no one less so. Let me put a couple of verses up on the screen to just display the Bible's testimony about that very truth. Romans 3.23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of us. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. They're like filthy rags. Romans 3. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good not even one so the testimony of the entire bible is abundantly clear the standard of god is holiness the standard of god is perfect righteousness and none of us measures up we're all lawbreakers And as lawbreakers, we all deserve then to be met with justice. We stand condemned before the judge. Now I know it's it's hard to fully comprehend that truth. Because we don't typically see ourselves as 
being bad people, right? We don't see ourselves as being worthy of, of that kind of condemnation, but that's only because we tend to evaluate ourselves against other people, right? You can always find somebody who's sort of, quote, worse than you, right? So if I evaluate myself against others, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to comprehend that I could be found to be not good. And in fact, you might be a pretty good person, at least according to how you define good. But comparing ourselves to others is meaningless and vanity. Other people are not the standard. The holiness of God is the standard. And when we begin to grasp that, that is, that's hard news to bear, even for the most pious and consistent do-gooders among us. And that's who would have been listening to Jesus. His audience here would have thought of themselves in that way. We're pretty good people. Remember, he's speaking in this moment to Jewish people. They would have said, we're God's chosen people, right? We, we're the keepers of the law. This was a religious bunch. They thought of themselves as the sons and the daughters of Abraham. But Jesus goes on to illustrate, and this is the second point, that even religion isn't good enough to save you from judgment. Even religion isn't enough to save you from judgment. Look down again at the text, verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, if you are here last week, you know that we read this parable last week and we discussed the concept of a tree being known by its fruit. And so I'm going to let last week's ex explanation of that suffice. But it's, it's obvious that the tree here, which is bearing no fruit at all, serves as a metaphor for people who are not bearing fruit for God. Uh, and, and, and by that... Uh, meaning that, that, that these, are, these are people who uh, aren't living lives that please him, bearing no fruit. There, there's no sign of repentance and direction towards God. What we didn't talk about, though, last week was the fact that this fig tree is a common Old Testament image used to represent the people of Israel who are sometimes referred to as figs on a fig tree, like, for example, in Hosea chapter 9 or in Jeremiah 20, 24, or sometimes they're, they're depicted as the fig tree itself that bears no fruit, like in Jeremiah chapter 8. Here's the, here's the imagery. The parable's imagery depicts God's faithful cultivation of Israel over many centuries in the hopes that they would bear fruit. But their special relationship with him had instead just sort of devolved into being a fruitless and barren religion. That's the point of the parable. Look again at verse 8. The vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and, and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So here, even though, though the vine dresser pleads with the owner for more time, we're left resigned to understand that it's never going to be sufficient. Never going to be enough. And the point of the story is that it's not enough to simply be within 
the vineyard. The meaning is clear. The Jews can't rely on their religious heritage. They can't rely on their religious heritage. It is a heart of true repentance that God is interested in. That's what it means to bear fruit. We've already heard John the Baptist say this back in Luke chapter 3. I'll put this up on the screen for you so you don't have to flip back there. Remember what he said? He said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Very similar to the parable that Jesus is telling here. Look, there is a true religion. There is a true religion that comes from the outflow of a repentant heart in faith and obedience to Christ. But most exercises of religion are quite empty. They're only only practically serving is sort of like this meaningless label that I would wear. Just something that can make me feel better about my relationship with God. I might call myself one of God's people. I might point to my religious exercises. I might point to my religious attachment. But apart from a new heart, I'm only fooling myself. I once heard someone say, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. Mere proximity to a gym doesn't make you fit and strong. (laughs) Right? We're, we're, We're called to be more than just sort of in proximity. It doesn't save us to be in mere proximity to God or his people or religious attachments. Even the most devoted religious people far often place their hope in their own ability to do what's right and to please God. They, you, they, they put their trust in their efforts. But if all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, as we just read, then religion itself, even in its most pious, even in its most committed form, can't save anyone. Religion doesn't make a person any better off than the non-religious person. Paul mentions this in Romans 2. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's talking about the non-believer. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about the believer, the Jew versus the Gentile. You're no better off. So if that's true, what hope do sinners like you and me have? What hope do we have to truly bear fruit and to stand blameless before a holy God? Look down at verse 22, chapter 13. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's an important question. Who can be saved? Will those who are saved be few? Important question. How does Jesus respond? This is the third point. 
It's entering by the narrow door. That's how he responds. Look at the text. Verse 23 again. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Jesus employs some clarifying repetition here to drive home this point that, again, mere proximity to him or mere proximity to religion or your religious affiliations are not sufficient. They can't gain anyone entrance into the kingdom of God. There will be many, he says, who will be locked out, much to their surprise. That's a very sobering warning. But Jesus provides us with the solution. What does he say? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. What does that mean? The word strive, interestingly, I mean, it, it makes sense, but it, it carries with it the idea of struggle. It carries with it the idea of, 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 of sort of a fight. If you think about that on the surface, that might sound a bit confusing. Didn't we just read and say that, that it's not our effort that merits our salvation? It's not our effort that's going to get us into the kingdom? Striving and struggling sounds a lot like effort, doesn't it? But the striving that Jesus is talking about here is the struggle of self-denial that produces true repentance. You say, how do you know that? Because I remember what he said in Luke chapter 9. Remember what he said? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, you know what I know? It is a struggle to deny myself. It is a struggle to deny myself. Why? Because as I said last week, pride is a pervasive poison that flows through every human heart it is a struggle for my flesh to admit that i have no power within myself to fix my sin problem it takes fight against my pride to demonstrate that kind of humility and here's the here's the beautiful thing that's exactly what a narrow door demands that kind of humility. That's exactly what it demands. Narrow doors must be squeezed through because it's a tight fit. And that tight fit requires me to strip myself of any additional baggage. I can't add anything to myself. I can't take anything upon myself and fit through a tight 
door. You know, a good illustration for this are those, you know those tall turnstiles that are at the, like in the subway stations or at the bottom of the L platforms when you ride the CTA? You, you go through, it's like, <laughs> you've all been through those, right? I think that's a, that serves as a good illustration. They can barely fit one person, let alone anything or anyone else. And I once found that out the hard way because I made the mistake of trying to take my luggage with me through one of those things on my way to the airport. I didn't realize that, that right next to that tall turnstile was literally a wide gate for that very purpose. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and was like, hey, buddy, you could go that way, you know. Right? But here I was trying to figure it out. I think that's a great illustration. You can't take anything with you through a narrow doorway. Repentance, by definition, is the admission that I have nothing to offer to God except my sinful heart and my need for him to forgive me. My need for him to save me. I need his grace and his mercy in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. That's the striving that Jesus is calling us to. Diligently pursue the humility that leads you to deny yourself and to arrive at that foot of the cross with nothing but your need. The narrow door has a very particular shape. It's the shape of a cross. Luke reminds us in verse 22 that this is exactly where Jesus is leading us. Look back at verse 22. What does it say? Jesus was journeying towards Jerusalem. What was awaiting him in Jerusalem? He was headed towards the cross. And what does he say to his disciples when they finally arrive in Jerusalem? John records this for us. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's because Jesus goes to the cross that we can enter the kingdom of God. Earlier we heard about the Galileans whose blood had been mingled with their sacrifices. Well, listen, Jesus' blood is the sacrifice. Is the sacrifice. His death satisfied the justice of God against human sin. The, the debt was paid in the death of a human, of a man. But the mercy of God for sinners is also poured out on you and me because the man who died, died in our place, was also the Son of God. The only sinless, perfectly holy man who ever lived. And he willingly exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness so that he could bear the punishment that we deserved. And we could receive the reward that only he deserved. That's what it means to be forgiven and saved from God's judgment. You bring nothing to the cross except for your need for Jesus to be the substitute sacrifice that makes you right with God. 
and you trust in his obedience to count as your own. We rely fully on him. Through him, we enter the narrow door. Jesus is calling us to repent, to turn from sin, and to believe on him. You know, we asked the question earlier, why, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to, to good people? I love how the late R.C. Sproul answered that question. He said, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once. And he volunteered. Nonetheless, we're told, listen, interpret the times. Interpret the times. Yes, the world is on a trajectory of decay. Tragedies occur. They occur all around us and sometimes they happen to us. But they're meant to be viewed as reminders that the time to repent and believe is short. It's short. The day of judgment is coming and we are either in Christ or we are locked out. Notice that when, when asked, who will those or when he asks, uh, will those who are saved be few? Jesus doesn't answer by giving a number. Like He doesn't focus on how many people will be or won't be. He focuses on the time that they have left to respond. Notice that? Look back again at verse 25. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Will, 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 will there be many people or few people? I'm not answering that. Here's what I'm answering. There's a time coming when once the master will rise and shut the door. It's true that many will not enter the kingdom. But there is still time for you. There's still time for you. There's plenty of room for all who come to Jesus through the narrow door of repentance. Verse 29 People will come from the east and west, from the north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. There will be people from everywhere who receive this salvation and who will be in the kingdom. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Listen, for those of us who have responded already, Praise God for his gracious, saving work in your life. Praise God for his gracious, saving work. Remember the gospel and, and don't be tempted to run back to any attempts to earn it by your merit. Don't be tempted to run back to any religious exercises in which to sort of gain the favor of God. Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ alone is our hope. But for those of you who have not responded yet, hear the gracious offer of God to you. He is right to judge sin. He would not be good if he didn't judge sin. And that judgment is coming. And that judgment is universal. But God has made a way in his son to be forgiven and reconciled. Will you respond? Will you respond? Turn to him. Admit your need. 
trust in Christ's finished work to count for you. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for your word and thank you, Lord, for this particular difficult text. Lord, it is a scary thing to have the God who made us stand before us and say, you have rejected me. It's a scary thing to know that in his righteousness, he must judge unrighteousness. It's particularly scary when we realize that that unrighteousness covers us. But we thank you for your grace and mercy in sending Jesus to come to be the perfect human being that we could not be. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice on the cross as our substitute to bear your judgment. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy in not only being satisfied by what he has done, but, Lord, in transferring his perfection and his righteousness to those of us who are washed by that shed blood, who trust in him to be our Savior. We can stand now fully in your presence and be declared righteous, holy, clean, forgiven, and welcome into your kingdom forever. What a treasure we have in our salvation. So yes, Father, I pray for those of us who know this salvation, Lord, just warm our hearts with the reality of what we've been given and who we are now in your Son. Let that cause our hearts to well up in praise and love for you, Lord, followed by a life devoted to you in obedience, Lord, because you're worthy. Father, there are those here who have not turned from sin and trusted you. May May these words that Jesus has spoken to them and that I have tried to explain, Lord, may may your spirit use them to, to open their eyes. That they would come bearing nothing but their sin and their need, falling at the foot of Christ and believing wholeheartedly that his work is sufficient. Oh, what a treasure we have in the gospel, the good news of your son. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mom.